are listening to the Elephant in the Room podcast with your host, Sutta Singh. Each week, we will bring you a diverse range of inspiring speakers on issues of inequality and inequity. You will hear stories about fairness, justice, belonging, and about best practice for creating a more inclusive workplace. So, if you are an individual or leader interested in a fairer, equitable, compassionate society and workplace, this podcast is for you. My guest on the Elephant in the Room podcast this week is Becky Cho, VP Corporate Affairs and Communications at VFC APAC. For the last two decades, Becky's primary focus has been to establish comprehensive communication programs to support brand building and corporate reputation while playing an active role on sustainability through partnerships with NGOs and think tanks. Thank you, Becky, for being a guest on the Elephant in the Room podcast. It's brilliant to see you after three years. Thank you. It's really a pleasure to meet you again. It's been a long time. And with the COVID world, I cannot tell you what a great surprise when I hear you reaching out because uh, in the COVID world, you really have to do that. Otherwise, we don't really get an opportunity to meet each other. And it brings us closer if we can meet virtually. So thank you for the opportunity. Brilliant. So to start with, uh, could you tell us a bit about your background and education? Yes, of course. So I have a really interesting, I would say, cross-cultural background. So if I'm changing geography as I'm speaking and making reference to location, please bear with me. I was born in Hong Kong. I left Hong Kong as a teenager and moved to Canada, where I continue my education and do my college and university And actually, subsequently, I immigrated to Canada. So I think from an educational point of view, I am raised as a Hong Kong student, British education. I read and write Chinese, completely bilingual. So that gave me a really solid background on culture of my own nationality. But Canada really opened my eyes. I think the East and West was a really good mix for me. And it really also opened up. Uh, perspective for me in later in my career. I wouldn't say skill because I think we all can do and learn skills uh, from different parts of the world and especially with inclusion and diversity being such a key focus these days for corporations. I couldn't say more about the mix of East and West in my early education. Sometimes when we're talking about inclusion and diversity that I would participate in let's say the Western part of the world I feel that having that background, that culture really provide the foundation for a lot of the discussion that are not otherwise available to my Western colleagues. Absolutely. Agree with you totally on this. So how did you get into PR and your journey to your current role at VF? Yeah, so I think long story short is I did stumble into many different areas before I come into public relations. I'm not your traditional business school, studying communication, become a journalist and then turn into PR. That's more the traditional journey. I took a completely uh, unconventional one. Early in my career, I was actually an art agent. So I guess half of my career is in the arts. And when you're in the arts, one very common phenomenon is you're dealing with a lot of starving artists. And the arts are always fundraising. Because art itself is an industry that needs a lot of support, public sector, 
And in the private sector, it's so competitive. By nature, I love the arts, so that's a passion I have. I met a whole bunch of artists in my life, and I felt like, okay, I can do some PR around it. So that's where I started. And in fact, my own sister is an artist herself. She graduated from college. She had a lot of really great painting. And I look at it and I said, "Well, I'm going to market them." So、yeah. I was very entrepreneurial in my first couple of years in my career. And then, as I become an agent, I met a lot of advertising people because they are、yeah. always looking for art pieces. And so, with advertising, then I built an agency background where I know about corporations building reputations through creative elements as well as "quote unquote" public relations. So I become more of a storyteller at that、yeah. point, using the art language quite a bit. So I also write commentary on photography. So that's how I kind of sharpen my pencil for the public relations skills in, earlier in my career, but not in a traditional way. So I become a photographer. I was writing for photo journals, and then I was also promoting the arts with advertising agency. So all of that was my early career, and then one day. I got a call from one of my client in advertising, and that's Philip Morris. So I was working for Leo Burnett at the time. So Philip Morris is a long-term client for Leo Burnett. And so what happened is that they said, "Look, I work with you. I saw your skill. We have an opening in the corporate affairs department, and I think you might be suitable for the job." And so they opened the door for me out of completely trusting on. Skills that are transferable, which I think later on we can definitely talk about it. Having someone who have that vision and believing in me, and and just inviting me to the job, and I got the job. So that's how I step into corporate affairs and public relations on the corporate side. And you moved into VF what a couple of years back. No, it's already my fourth year. So how time flies, right?、Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The project we worked on was three years ago, and、uh, this is my fourth year in VF. So VF Corporations have headquarters in Denver, and we own about twelve brands, and some of them names that you would be familiar with: the North Face, Timberland. So they never really have an Asia Pacific corporate affairs、uh, function before I joined. So I was invited to join them. I was working for Adidas at the time, same function, same position, and they were looking for someone who had an payroll industry experience,、uh, but could kind of lead、uh, the function in Asia. So I took the job and joined them in Hong Kong. And since then, our headquarters、uh, for the region have also moved to Singapore and Shanghai. So I'm currently based in Shanghai. So industry is very well known for long hours, the absence of work-life balance. How easy or difficult was it for you right through your career? Yeah, for a period of time when I was working for Leo Burnett, I was in Chicago. I was raising a son; he was two years old. I was a young mother. Advertising is always long hours as well. But when I go to、yeah. the US, I felt like. Wow, what an eye opener! I can shut down my laptop and be home by five p.m. And whereas throughout my early career in advertising, it's like you don't get a break. I mean, you always switch on. You have a pre-production meeting at midnight with some producer in Melbourne. Like those crazy hours that we work in. So I know where your question coming from, but I think things have changed. 
things have changed because I think lifestyle requirement and the societal expectation has improved. I have to say that more empathy about young mother, about situations where when you have an elderly person at home that you need to attend to, if you do voice that out, if you do actually announce it among your team, whether it's to your superior or to your peers, people understand. I do feel that Asia has stepped up to that kind of empathy. However, what Asia hasn't stepped up is that always drive for performance, right? So you have one side, uh, more humane, more understanding requirement to your associates or your colleagues' well-being. But on the other hand, the hours are still long and it's never switched off. I mean, the crazy thing, uh, Suda, I wanted to share with you in China that I completely try to avoid is that we set up these WeChat, which similar to your WhatsApp as well, but then these WeChat group in China are famous, famous for setting up one for maybe this project, that one for other projects. But in fact, those projects also overlap. So just like the old days when you're getting 10 emails on the same day, but now it's not just on the email, it's also on your phone, which, you know, it's like ding, ding, Constantly. Constantly. So I have to say I do not and I despise behavior that are over-management, over-communication and micromanagement. I think those definitely toxic and not effective. In fact, they are the most ineffective way to communicate. As a communicator, I think we should do better. Maybe our peers might not be experts in communicator. Then we have to tell them. So in my career, when you ask me, How do I balance the agenda when the work-life balance is so off? But then I'm also a mother. I also have family to take care of. I have been quite vocal about encouraging both my team member, myself, and anybody that I work with to take the driver's seats and take care of your own well-being first. So how that scenario and that metaphor that when you go on an airplane, the safety video always says to you, Put on your own oxygen mask before you help another person. That's the learning I've always had about work-life balance, is that if you do not have that oxygen mask, you're never going to be an effective employee or be able to help another person. So I hope that shares some insight. I just feel that you just have to seek every opportunity to voice the well-being concern, not just for yourself, Sometimes it's on behalf of somebody else that you learn about. I'm a nosy person. I'm very disruptive. So probably causing me more trouble than I should. (laughs) But I also look at it as a way to help myself out. That's amazing advice and great insight to hear that there has been movement. But of course, there are challenges still. Not everything is going to get solved in a day. So a Provoke Media Research report from last year quoted the gender pay gap in the region and lower levels of women in leadership and a lot of the people in the leadership positions. And generally, men in leadership is like 30% and at 46% in partner level employees are men. What are your comments on that? Yeah, I think those data and also those analytics, I'm also involved in the Women Council uh, for uh, APAC. I often have to participate in those discussions. So I'm very close to those data. And as I said, in the PR world, inclusion and diversity, such a big part. Remember in the old days, there's probably several buckets. One bucket is probably purpose, which is 
how can contribute yeah. to the community, work on that. Yeah. Another bucket is your performance, right, which is yeah. leading the business. And then another bucket is probably uh, green, sustainability, doing good for the planet. But now I have a fourth bucket, which we call the inclusion and diversity in culture. So going back to your point about leadership proportion between gender, I've looked at a lot of data, but the data actually tells me that those balance, in, in, whether it's proportional or improportional, varies. I think I've been very, very fortunate to be in a lot of industries that have a really good balance. In fact, at VF, our APEC women leadership is 50%. So it's like really, really high. But that doesn't mean the world is the same. So I think your question is more towards in every sort of sector or um, in society that work in how do we advance women inclusion and diversity. I think the most successful women that I know craft their own path. Well, first of all, you have to have that fearlessness to be not afraid to fail and to have friends who are in your corner and walk through open doors and uh, help you to create that personal space. So then back to taking the driver's seats, being on the agenda. Now, it's easier said and done when you are higher up in the hierarchy than lower down. But I've also seen examples of managers, just mid-level positions, but they are empowering other women and they are setting up examples. What I was referring to, crafting your own path is probably something you have to remember, even if the wind is very small. So if there's lower hanging fruit that you can grab onto, try those because it's a muscle you have to flex. And you always have to remember. Yeah, how interesting. What would you say, Becky, were your biggest challenges as you navigated your career graph across organizations, across sectors, actually, and geographies? The biggest challenge in my career, ironically, has nothing to do with convincing and influencing stakeholders of your organization or the industry or the geography that are new to my background. So for instance, I hop on a flight and move my family to Chicago and I have to be managing a team there. And I wasn't in the States. I mean, I have education in Canada, but the United States is new to me. So I took the challenge and I I did that with, with no prior background. So it it has not been challenging because of that. The challenge often comes from my own environment, actually. So I remember I moved to Chicago and then I moved back to Taipei and then subsequently to Hong Kong. And that's when people who are kind of nearest to you and your culture have a kind of preconceived bias or conventional thinking that is hard to break in. I think those are toxic. Someone who is not willing to offer an open door for new thoughts to come in. I've always been a deliverer of disruption. I want to be a disruptor. But it may not happen too often in your career that you can do that. It might not be available to you even if you want to. So my mantra has always been that it is our obligation as a leader or parents sometimes, right? You know, parenthood, leadership, same thing. I think we should make trouble. The type of trouble that leaves your kids better that leaves the room that we are in elevated and the types that let us be part of ourselves. That's some really good advice there. So this is like a good segue into the question on what leadership means to you and any good examples. I'm going to turn a little philosophical. If you don't mind, it's not going to be something that's about skills. So I think leadership is to understand that power is only positional 
but influence is personal. So in my career, I exercise a lot of whether trying to build influence within the community that I work with or help other build influence. So you need to have to encourage someone and feed into that influence journey or you build your own influence that you could talk to others and, and others listen to you. Take, for example, a new CEO, right? There's particular power a CEO gaining when she moves and pass on into wherever place she take. But influence, on the other hand, has a lot more to do with who we are than what our role and title is. So I was referring to when you're more senior in the hierarchy, it's easier to influence. That's probably not the influence I'm referring to. I'm referring to the everyday influence, no matter how big or small, to build that and to arm yourself with that influence. That's really philosophical. But it's also very practical at one level, Becky. And if we deconstruct that, I think it will enable us to navigate better and think about it in not such difficult terms and not always think about hierarchies, but think about how you're influencing people and where you can move your agenda through the influence that you have. You have to. And this minority that we're talking about is not just women or gender. This minority we're talking about can be racial. This minority we're talking about can be societal, classes, caste structure. So you just are hit in many different ways and you just have to be firm If you are excluded, insulted, forgotten, or ignored by the people you give your time to, you don't do yourself a favor by continuing to offer your energy and your life. The truth is that we are not for everyone, and not everyone is for you. So I think a lot of the times we have to think about these self-help strategies. When you're in a position that you're stuck, You feel that you are ignored, insulted. If it's available to you, be selective, right? I know sometimes society, it's not even available to you. You're stuck. If available to you, be selective. Protect your mind, protect your soul, and seek your allies, right? So Suda would be somebody I talk to and she would understand me. I'll give you a call. And maybe seek your advice. So those self-help are so important, but you have to realize, though, there are millions of people on this planet, and many of them will meet you at your level and interest and commitment. True. Absolutely. Agree with you on this. Because I think one of the things is that this is not just about gender. It is about all people who are in marginalized or disadvantaged positions. And the second thing is that often we are stuck in a toxic cycle. We are not able to break that cycle. We continue to work as hard, even though it might not be resulting in what we want from that entire opportunity. It requires us to put our mental well-being and it requires probably a bit of courage also. And the idea that you will still survive and you'll get something else. Yeah. I think most uh, people are very fearful of that. Yeah. It's a comfort zone. It's a fear factor. It is how we were brought up. We don't brought up to fight. We brought up to say we share, we comply, we follow the rules. But you know, self-care is often a very beautiful thing too. Like you need to sweat through another workout. That's not what you like to do, but it is self-care. Absolutely. And tell a toxic friend that 
I don't want to see you anymore. That's hard. Or figure out a way to accept yourself so that you are not constantly exhausted from trying to be everything. So yeah. we as achiever, as leaders in our job, we always want to do that. And all the time needing to take the liberty and to do the basic things like even turn off your phone for the day. Yeah. Those things we need to kind of constantly remind ourselves, but they're not beautiful. They sometimes are the most mundane and maybe even hard to do. Yeah, we need to start getting into that habit of doing some of those hard-to-do things. So did you have any role models of people uh, that you looked up to as you were growing in the PR industry or outside the industry? And how important do you think are role models for aspiring women leaders or any leaders, actually? Yeah, role model is a very interesting phenomenon. And I have exercised either as a beneficiary or as someone's telling me that, hey, I love to learn from you. So I'm currently a mentor for a couple of women in the organization. And uh, it's a free matching. It wasn't really a requirement that I I'd love to do it. And I would continue to, to do it as long as there was a need. But throughout my career, especially when I was a younger self, I often seek those mentorship experience as much as I can. So you asked me whether I have a role model. So like many of us, I get inspiration from great leaders of all time. You often see inspirational speeches, such as Maya Angelou, such as Martin Luther King, such as Judge yeah. Ginsburg. So you do hear and inspired by these great leaders. But um, what really has been my true role model throughout my career are really ordinary people. These are just managers I happen to bump into, mothers that I met at schools, grandmothers, students, or maybe just caretakers that I happen to meet. Um, yeah. They inspire me. I love to learn from their simple but uh, powerful attitude. So usually these role models possess a very powerful attitude and often victories, big or small, that everyday life role model may bring. That victory could be just getting this old lady into the building herself without walking sticks or a wheelchair yeah. because yeah. we want to encourage her to use her muscles. Something yeah. like that, when I watch it, when I see it, they are real inspiration for me because they're so humble. Very insightful. As I was growing up, I realized the people who inspired me was my mother and how she lived her life or more in the real life people rather than these very well-known entities. Because they're more approachable and they relate to your everyday life more. So then the learning become more real. Of course, I admire big leaders and historical politicians and philosophers and whatnot. But I, I still feel that being simple being the daily powerful examples, they are really normal. We are talking about the industry and how it has changed dramatically in the past five years. And of course, in the last two years, it's been like we couldn't ever imagine that we would be in this space or we would be working like this. What, according to you, are the big transformational trends for our industry that we need to look out for? Well, yeah, I thought about this question. It's a big topic and I don't want to go into too much details on the specific and the technology side of it. I wanted to go into sort of more the holistic strategy. The greatest transformation is very basic. It's basically, I think, in the way we communicate, 
right? The 21st century of communication is completely different from how we were used to and how we were brought up. It's faster, it's more social, it's more candid, and it might not have rules uh, that we could measure and engage. So that has changed a lot. And that includes communication behavior following a lot of lifestyle change. So the pandemic is a lifestyle change, right? A lot of societies are having a lot of single people. Not many people are getting married. The sort of the lifestyle and the family structure change. So all of that, I think, took into effect. But when we're talking about public relations, very few people can explain what people in public relations really do. I don't know if you've had that experience before, um, yeah. but I've got asked so many times in my career and my life. Uh, we continue to be a small group. So all the time, a function of public relations in a company, however big it is, is probably a handful of people. And so therefore, we are easily being misunderstood. So that DNA itself, that positioning of already not many people understanding what PR does, as well as this transformation of the way we live, our lifestyle, the way we work, that's the biggest change for public relations. And so I feel like a lot of the times when the societal and our environment change, we need to be the first one who did it, especially if you're doing internal communication. You're not even yeah. dealing with influencing external folks, even internal, yeah. like your own family. Yeah. How do you communicate effectively with your own family? Isn't that a great problem to have? Or isn't it one thing that you need to really sort it out immediately? Yeah, true, true. So has your role evolved in the past two years to respond to the changes in how we live and work? So internal comms has suddenly got the spotlight across the world because it's so critical to keep employees motivated and engaged. Yeah, I think it's probably, again, what comes to mind because the pandemic has been with us for over two years now. So when you ask me what has changed, I think that reference is probably very relevant to your audience. I think the pandemic has changed so many ways we live and work. And the more remote and unable to do traditional solutions, creative problem solving, and to do traditional way of engagement, the more demanding it is for our job to support creative solutions on engagement, especially employee engagement. But the way to engage is highly challenged by technology. So if your colleagues in some part of the world that really doesn't have good internet facilities, how do you face that reality? That's the million-dollar question. And also, on top of that, the fatigue of online. You and I are talking now online. I would have loved to have a drink with you somewhere in India. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like over over a drink, and that would be so much more human. I think your mind can be opened up. So the fatigue and the challenge of technology of where you are is often uh, a, a big challenge. I used to feel that my work has like a 70 and 30 split in the past. 70 being external because I have to help the business. I want to build reputation and 30 is the internal because they are my own family. They're always there. I just need to make sure that I communicate properly all the key deliverables. But now it's switched almost completely. So a large part of my time is to rehash those challenges I was talking to you about the fatigue of the online, the technology challenges. Our baselines are different. More employees' baselines are different. So 
Now, I think the emphasis is in internal communication, even more so. Another thing that your audience would probably resonate is that internal is external, right? Anytime you communicate, your internal is already communicating with consumers, with future talents, with families and friends, and they're all consumers that relate to your brand. So I think that reverse of having a lot of energy spending internal comms, meaning that you really have to invest your energy, your time, your resource allocation. Yeah. Yeah. To better equip yourself, learn the last technology that is available. What is the clutches in the webinar that will stop you from being very effective? What is the cadence? You, you, you don't want to over communicate. So yeah. it's harder to hold back than yeah. to over communicate. So when do you have that right moment to talk to your leaders and your colleagues to say, look, it's not about sending yet another email or setting up yet another meeting, having the silence, having the space. It's hard. It's not easy for people to embrace it because we say, oh, we have to do something. That we have to do something mantra has to go. Not every problem is about you fixing it and doing something. That's very good advice. Finally, how can practitioners keep abreast uh, with the changes, with the technology, and what would be the key skills they should be looking at honing? Well, for skills, that's a pretty easy one to talk about because that's more the science of it. I think the art of it is the harder one to talk about. But for skills, I think those are a lot of soft skills, to be honest. You have to practice a lot of empathy. Uh, practice your listening, make sure that you have a systematic way to listen. So not just like every year I do my performance review and I have a chat with my team. That's not (laughs) enough. That's not enough. Do a very systematic way of listening to not just your own team too. Try to set up meetings where you listen to feedback from different functions, from your different stakeholder, internal, external. I think listening skills are completely underrated in practicing empathy, the two main soft skills that you can do yourself justice and your team justice. The more science of it, I think, and you would definitely agree, and it's not new phenomenon, is content marketing. So in the past, as a traditional public relations, you talk to journalists, you expect that wow to happen on New York Times when your headlines or your story come out. We are storyteller. We should continue to do what we do best for the company. However, because the lifestyle change and the way we communicate change, so staying up to date with what are the tools that are available to you to do your content marketing. I'm always very proud of public relations because we don't do pay media. Most of the time we influence someone to write your story. And the authenticity of that nature of storytelling is still very high bar. But because we are all like, you can't be going to the foreign correspondent club and meet your colleagues, no. or your journalist there now. So what do you do? Do you set up a Zoom with him? No, that's not a natural, organic way to engage. So think of ways that you can have control, and which means that we still do the traditional reach out, pitching for stories, because the journals are locked up too. They need story. So the situation is the same. It's just different ways of of breaking in and engaging with them, deliver work that they feel also proud of. 
So it has to be a win-win with journalism. But then content marketing is what we can control. And usually to me, the powerful content marketing, the content pieces that feel powerful are still from traditional. So for instance, if I did an exclusive interview, one of my leaders did one with Fortune magazines. And so I would then repurpose because not many people didn't come across yeah. that, that, uh, that article, but repurpose it in a very human, social way. So your colleagues, your stakeholder, your government partners, everybody can have a quick read on that. It might not be the full article that they are paying attention to, but even if I get hit on their read for the headline, I win. So I, I think content marketing is completely the name of the game, but you just have to kind of cadence it invest in it and make sure that your investment is is well positioned. That's very insightful and you've given us a lot of food for thought. Uh, Thank you so much, Becky, for making time and working across your time zone to make this time for me. Thank you. Truly appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you for joining us this week on the Elephant in the Room podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on any of your favorite platforms, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts. And if you enjoyed listening to the podcast today, don't forget to write a review and tell your friends. Sign up on the link in the show notes to receive updates on our guest speakers, blogs and events. And don't forget to tune in every Thursday for new episodes.